Welcome back to The Jacob Wolf Show. A lot of news to discuss today. We're going to get into the Memphis rampage. What the hell was going on in Memphis, Tennessee last night? Of course, the late breaking news here as we fired up the show is that Queen Elizabeth of England is dead at age 96. This was one of my predictions at the beginning of the year on the first episode of my old program, Man Up with Jacob Wall on Censored.tv. I discussed how I thought that might happen. It just felt as though it were in the ether. Uh, that coming out just now, earlier in the day, it announced that she was on Health Watch, and now uh, a press release saying that she has died at age 96. I'm not the expert on the royal family or on royal intrigue. You're going to have to go somewhere else for that. But I do want to discuss with you uh, this story out of Memphis, Tennessee. What the hell is going on in Memphis, Tennessee? Uh, it is just absolutely uh, unbelievable what's happening there. And uh, I want to talk to you about this. Of course, uh, this very uh, unbelievable live stream going up uh, on Facebook. Uh, this man uh, named Ezekiel Kelly, 19 years old, four killed and three injured in Memphis, Tennessee by this violent thug. He was streaming on Facebook. He was going uh, place to place for a number of hours, just shooting people as though he were in some kind of uh, video game, walking into what looked like a, an, an auto shop or something, uh, uh, just shooting someone in the chest the second he walked in, just going on a total rampage, a total and complete rampage. Uh, it was just totally unbelievable to see uh, just, just unreal, absolutely unreal that happening, uh, just recently. And so that's, the, that's the latest news out there. Um, it is just unbelievable to watch this. I'm not going to show the video here. I don't even know if we, if we can show this video, uh, here live on, uh, YouTube, but it is, uh, just remarkable. I know many of you listening out there have, have seen this, uh, the video that went all around, uh, if not the entire stream. Uh, and so that has made the rounds. And it also comes after another high-profile incident happened in Memphis uh, just recently. Of course, I'm talking about the kidnapping and murder of Aliza Fletcher. Uh, this, again, another uh, thug taking to the streets and committing violent crime. Uh, this story, it's uh, of course, the latest out is that the body of Aliza Fletcher was found Monday night in South Memphis, Memphis police confirmed, on Tuesday morning. Police officially identified a body found in the rear of an abandoned duplex on Victor Street as the missing 34-year-old mother and teacher. Uh, this is a picture of the killer here, Cleotha Abston. They write about the victim, a born athlete, Lisa's passions for sports extended from childhood teams to collegiate competition to excellence in marathons in adulthood. The obituary says she found great joy in morning runs with friends. She channeled her competitive nature into enthusiastic participation in all that she undertook. Fletcher was described as someone who modeled the Christian life and trusted in her unwavering faith. Her killer, very different though, Cleotha uh, Abson here, he is a repeat offender, a recidivist. And uh, we are getting used to seeing more and more of this. Of course, the result of so-called criminal justice reform, which has been a total disaster. We all recall Kim Kardashian and Kanye West going to the White House, Jared Kushner uh, recommending that President Trump let 
these violent thugs out of jail. They're only there because of structural racism. They didn't do anything wrong. They've been punished by a racist justice system. We've been told all of this. And as these violent thugs have made their way back onto the streets, it has been carnage, absolute carnage. There have been thousands of Americans killed thanks to so-called criminal justice reform, thanks to the First Step Act and other laws like it that have been passed at the state level. In, in, in one fell swoop with the signing of the First Step Act, President Trump and, and Republicans who pushed it like Tim Scott did what the Democrats were too afraid to do for 20 years. No Democrat president, even Barack Obama, could sign a proposal that far left. Only Trump could do it, and he did. And thanks to that, thousands of Americans have been killed, including uh, Lisa Fletcher. Uh, she was uh, violently murdered, kidnapped. This thug, uh, Cleotha Abstin here, he was uh, serving 20 years for a separate aggravated kidnapping in which he tried to kill the victim. He got out, he did it again right away. And the same goes for this, uh, this violent thug in Memphis that did the shooting last night, Ezekiel Kelly. Uh, last year, he was convicted of aggravated assault and sentenced to three years in prison, but was released early. His attempted murder and other felony murder charges were dismissed. So you have this phenomenon in these cities where you have left-wing district attorneys. And it is the case that if you are a violent black criminal, you can actually get away with murder. I mean, this idea that the justice system is somehow racist against black Americans is a laughable lie. It is a lie beyond any comparison. And the proponents of this lie will point to historical examples like they'll say, for instance, well, then if the criminal justice system isn't racist, then why were the penalties for crack cocaine so much higher than those for powdered cocaine? That's because they say black people liked crack cocaine and white people like powdered cocaine. Well, no, not at all. In fact, the reason that the penalties were higher for crack cocaine than powdered cocaine is because crack cocaine is cheaper. It's much more addictive. And yes, it was afflicting the black community. It acts much more like methamphetamine. And so black lawmakers, including Maxine Waters in the late 80s, came out and they said, we need stiffer penalties for crack cocaine. We need to treat it like <clears throat> crystal meth. And by the way, the crystal meth convictions were overwhelmingly white, with some happening to be Hispanic as well. So they treated the drug more like that because it had those sorts of characteristics. There is no truth to this idea that, on average, the criminal justice system is racist against blacks, systematically racist against blacks. No truth at all. In fact, if you look at the propensity of police reports in which a black suspect is described versus police reports in which a white suspect is the one who is described. The white suspect is much, much, much more likely to be ultimately arrested, much less convicted, much more likely. And you talk about, well, you know, they can't afford attorneys. Well, ones are appointed, attorneys are appointed to them. Much easier to get a public defender if you're black than if you're white. No question about that. In fact, the vast majority of public defender resources in this country go to black Americans. Legal clinics and these other resources uh, that help people with 
landlord-tenant disputes that help people with civil matters that aren't covered uh, by this idea that your counsel is appointed to you, well, uh, they go overwhelmingly to, overwhelmingly to black Americans as well. So you have this carnage taking place on our streets. Lisa Fletcher murdered, three murdered last night, four injured uh, by this other thug uh, by, the, by the name of Ezekiel Kelly. And it is just one of many cases that are playing out across this country. Remember, Tennessee is a Republican state. It is a Republican state, but the Republican Party has been nearly as bad as the Democrat Party on the issue of crime. They have been nearly as bad. In fact, the only reason that Republicans can say that they're better than Democrats on crime is because they don't happen to be the ones that are in charge of these mayoral and DA positions, because the cities are overwhelmingly Democrat, of course. But there's no doubt that if Republicans were in charge of these mayoral roles, if they were in charge of these DA roles, they would be little better than the Democrats who currently occupy them. If you look at the Republican talking points on crime, they surround these ridiculous notions like that all of this crime has one thing in common, Democrats. Really? The nine most violent states actually know it's up to the 11 most violent states in this country that have the most violent crime per capita are all Republican states. Tennessee is one of them. Tennessee is one of those states. Kentucky is another one of those states. Republican states are just as out of control as Democrat states from a crime standpoint, and in many cases, they're much worse. Now they say, well, it's a local level, it's the DAs. Well, DAs are, of course, in a position to execute a, a great deal of prosecutorial discretion, but that discretion can be limited and can be steered by state laws, which Republicans are welcome to pass at any time in the states where they control the legislatures and the governor's offices. And so this is a huge problem across the country. It is a continuing problem in the United States known as black crime. And, and that's just what it is. There is an incredible uh, phenomenon taking place in which there is uh, a, a crime wave underway, and overwhelmingly, without any uh, comparison, without any uh, close competition, the group who is committing those crimes are black Americans. If you look at this sort of interracial violence, you know, Republicans often will point out, well, it's about black victims, you know, uh, they're more likely to be victims, and we, we're not racist, we care about the black victims. Okay, well, that's true. Of course, black-on-black -black crime is more common than interracial crime, as is white-on-white -white crime, because people tend to associate with people like them. Communities tend to be white communities or black communities or Asian communities. Of course, there are communities that are more diverse than others, but that's the exception and not the rule. They tend to be in coastal places like California and New York. There is an overwhelming problem in this regard. And it is playing out across the country. We've covered it on this show now for two years. It really uh, kicked up beginning in, oh, about, I guess it was about uh, 2020 is when this problem really started. It did seem to happen with the passing of the First Step Act. That seemed to be a big uh, creator of this problem, a big uh, accelerant. It seemed to be fuel on the fire. Uh, but that is something that has happened. It is playing out all over the country. 
Americans are victimized by it every day. And if you do look at when <clears throat> the violence does happen between races, it does happen to be overwhelmingly, and I mean overwhelmingly, black on white. I think it's something like 900 times, something like 900 times uh, more likely that you're going to have a black on white crime versus a white on black crime. Now, the question will be, is the Department of Justice going to fly into Memphis? Are they going to investigate uh, these cases for uh, racial bias? Is the Department of Justice going to do that? Are they going to send in FBI investigators uh, to quickly rush in and investigate racial bias in these cases the way that they did uh, in the cases where Jesse or where the uh, black uh, NASCAR driver had a rope hanging in the garage? Are they going to do that? That's a question that I have. Of course they won't. Uh, the, the lives of joggers matter so long as those joggers are black in the eyes of the Department of Justice, whether it's the Trump Department of Justice or whether it is the uh, Joe Biden Department of Justice. That is uh, unreal. This person says, if it's live, blink twice into the camera. Well, I just said it's live. So it is, in fact, live uh, here in the chat uh, here on YouTube. Of course, many of you are uh, listening on podcast apps everywhere. It is now up. The Jacob Bull Show is now up on Google Podcasts. The Jacob Bull Show is now up on Google Podcasts. It took about six days to populate in that app for whatever reason. I guess it tends to be uh, slower than other apps, but uh, that's okay. I'm, uh, I'm, I believe it is now up there, so you can uh, subscribe. Leave a five-star review if you would. It really helps us move up the, the rankings, move up the charts in the podcast apps. Okay, I want to talk up here about Steve Bannon. Oh, man, what an ordeal for Steve Bannon. Uh, it has now come out. Uh, he has surrendered himself as of this morning, <clears throat> with uh, or yesterday morning, rather, on six counts in the state of New York, including money laundering conspiracy and scheming to defraud for his role in We Build the Wall. This was, of course, the... Uh, I guess you could call it a plan in which there was a guy named Brian Colfage who came out. There were a few of these people, actually. There was competing projects that came out. This was in uh, late 2018, or maybe even mid-2018 it first started up. Brian Colfage is a guy that I uh, spoke to a number of times, never met him. Uh, veteran, I think he's a, a double amputee uh, at the legs. And they started this project to, to build a wall themselves. They said, well... The government's not doing a great job of building the wall. Even the Trump administration isn't. And so we're going to build it ourselves. They raised a lot of money. It went viral on GoFundMe. I think they raised something like $25 million total. Steve Bannon got involved quickly in the operation, and he heavily promoted it, got involved. And now he has been charged at the state level. You'll recall that he was charged along with Colfage in this uh, alleged scheme in which the prosecutors say that money was misappropriated back in late 2020 as the election approached, Bannon, even though he was a really a turncoat against Trump and cooperated with Mueller, uh, made it seem as though Trump and Roger Stone were colluding with Russians in his testimony, which of course I unearthed personally in my reporting on the Roger Stone trial, along with the fact that the jurors were corrupt. That was my reporting. I'm the guy who released the jury questionnaires. I'm the guy who released the grand jury transcripts. Of course, the FBI came after me for that. They spied on my phone calls for a year. They spied on all my emails. They tried to figure out who my source was. It's journalistic. Uh, it was a journalistic endeavor. 
It's not the FBI's role to start spying on my emails and spying on my phone calls and getting national security letters and search warrants for all of that. They did that anyway. Nothing ultimately ever came of it. But uh, I'm the guy who did that. Now, Bannon was a turncoat. He was pardoned anyway by Trump as Trump left office in this case. Now, Brian Colfage, the double amputee veteran, had no such luck. He was not pardoned. Of course, many rappers were pardoned. Uh, many repeat criminal rappers, uh, various uh, fraudsters from within the Jewish community, the New York Jewish community that were friends with Jared Kushner were pardoned, that had been convicted of uh, massive Medicaid fraud and things like that. And so now you have basically a, a double jeopardy situation. Bannon has now been charged with the very same crimes at the state level in New York. Uh, at least they let him surrender himself. Uh, that is at least a... a a, a one dignity that that the New York prosecutors in Manhattan afforded him, they didn't send the F, they didn't you know raid him, they didn't send a SWAT team to his home and and break his wife's ankle like uh, they did in the Roger Stone arrest. So that was one dignity that he was afforded, and and another further dignity that Bannon was afforded is that he got uh, no cash bail. He was just let out on his own recognizance. Uh, myself and Jack Berkman, when the Michigan AG came after us at the state level, there we had no such luck. We uh, they said, yeah, we're going to charge uh, probably $5,000 bail or zero if we can get it. So just, you know, bring uh, 10000 cash for the case. And uh, so we brought like 12000 cash for bail, Jack Berkman and I. And then when we get into the hearing, uh, we were doing it from the jail because of COVID. They had the courthouse closed down. So we're in the jail. You know, we're handcuffed, all of this stuff. And uh, the prosecutor then does a bait and switch. He says uh, at, he wants a million dollars bail each. Now, to give you an idea, uh, the killer in the uh, Eliza Fletcher case up there uh, or down there in, in Tennessee, I guess, from here relative to here, he was only given $500,000 bail with 10% down necessary. So they wanted a million dollars bail. Thankfully, our lawyers did a, a phenomenal job. They argued for uh, against that. And, and ultimately, the judge kind of split the difference, made it 100000 each, which was still not fun to round up from a jail in the middle of, uh, of Detroit, but uh, with a payphone that doesn't work. But we did it. So... He's represented there by David Schoen, uh, who's a, a great attorney. Uh, he uh, is a, a guy who was involved in the Trump impeachment trial, wonderful Jewish lawyer in New York. Uh, and so he is well represented. But you see in this case, th th that's the fact pattern. But th the more interesting analysis I think that I can provide to you is that you, what you see in this case is yet again, yet again, uh, a situation in which... Uh, you have the, the Democrats throwing out the rule of law. I see some people in the chat saying it's not live. It's absolutely live. Uh, that's just uh, nonsensical. So um, really nuts. Um, but anyway, it is it is absolutely live. Uh, I hear see somebody saying uh, Randy Lenz pre-recorded, I believe. Nope, show's not pre-recorded. It is live here on YouTube. Uh, of course, now, if you're listening on a podcast app, it is it is not live for you. Uh, but it is live in the in the general sense. I think the analysis here, though, is that the Democrats are throwing out the rule of law. They tried to do this to Paul Manafort. They tried to do this to Paul Manafort. He got out of jail at, at the federal level after ultimately pleading guilty to a couple counts and being found guilty at trial on a few others. They tried to charge him in Manhattan. Uh, and what happened there is that the judge threw it out. They said this is double jeopardy. Now, is this technically double jeopardy because Bannon was pardoned of the charge? That is something that uh, it, it may not be the case that it's technically double jeopardy. 
And they may argue that pardons don't apply for state crimes. And they may argue a lot of these things. But the bottom line is that in, in the sense of the way that things actually work, of course, it's double jeopardy. They're trying the very same conduct twice. Kind of like, again, with the alleged robocall nonsense where they uh, file charges in two separate states. They make you travel to two different states uh, in order to fight charges or three. Maybe they sue you in a third state. This is what this is all about. It, it is As much as this is about trying to hunt down Republicans and throw them in jail, and there's absolutely an element of that, there's an even bigger component here, which is about trying to paralyze Republican operatives. And, and, and I've been critical of Steve Bannon over the years for his involvement with Miles Kwok, who's a Chinese intelligence asset. Go look into that on my Telegram channel later. I don't have time to talk about that today. But he is a guy, Steve Bannon, who is in the fight. He is somebody who is in the fight. He is in the arena. He is involved. He raises money. He organizes uh, activists. He is involved in, in the sense of action. He is not merely a commentator. He is not merely a wordsmith. And when you become somebody who's not merely a wordsmith, you know, so they don't care so much about Ben Shapiro, let's say, because, I mean, they'd love to get him, but he's just a talker. He's just a commentator. Or Sean Hannity. Or uh, the late Rush Limbaugh. They wouldn't care as much about him because he only talks. He doesn't uh, act. But if you're a Republican operative... These charges are as much about trying to bankrupt you as they are about uh, throwing you in jail and actually having any real crime. And they don't just try to bankrupt you of your money. I mean, somebody like Steve Bannon has a lot of money, whether it's from Chinese sources or from his work as a, an executive producer for Seinfeld or whatever the case might be. He's got a lot of money. I don't think he's going to run out of money. But as much as it's about trying to bankrupt you of your money, it bankrupts you of your time. Because what the Democrats do is they charge you in all these different states, all these jurisdictions. It's, it, you know, there's a lot more virtual hearings these days. Thank God there are a lot more virtual hearings. But you have to appear in all these different states constantly, traveling, showing up. Half the time, I mean, I've had times where I had to fly to New York for here or fly to California from D.C. for a hearing take the red eye in, rush in, just to be told the hearing's been continued. Come back in two weeks, and you got to come all the way back. So this is what, what it's all about. Now, there's another instance of this taking place right now, a late-breaking report from the New York Times. The title is here, Trump's post-election fundraising comes under scrutiny by Justice Department. A federal grand jury has issued subpoenas seeking information about Save America PAC which was formed as Donald J. Trump promoted baseless assertions about election fraud. That's what the New York Times says. Uh, so that is now happening as well. You have this uh, endless witch hunt of Trump and anybody who's associated with Trump. Because, you see, the other impact that this has is an impact which is one of uh, a chilling impact to try to take you off the battlefield. So they try to take your money. They try to take your time. And another thing they do is they try to make it impossible for you to do anything because people are afraid. They say, you know, if I donate to Trump's PAC, um, am I going to get a grand jury subpoena, have to hire a lawyer, lose $50,000, lose all my time, get charged myself maybe, or at least get investigated, have the reputational damage, all the rest, and the stress. So you think about, like, for example, how hard it would be for Steve Bannon to hire good people. 
because there are a lot of perfectly capable people out there at jobs, let's say. And they can work on one thing or they can work on something else. Steve Bannon could offer to pay him 10000 more a year, 20000 more a year, whatever it is, for an IT guy, for a, um, a writer, for a, a copywriter, for a, an administrative assistant. And now he's always he's going to have a very hard time hiring people because these people who might very well like to do that job are going to say, well, you know, if I take that job as an executive assistant for Steve Bannon or for Jacob Wall or for uh, Donald Trump, maybe I'll end up subpoenaed in three months by four different AG's offices and I'll have to uh, hire a lawyer. Maybe they'll pay for the lawyer for me, but then I'll be stuck in depositions for a year and then maybe my name will get out there and leak and maybe they'll uh, tarnish my name. So it is something where it is a full bore attack that the Democrats are engaged in. Uh, What I will say is that I was hopeful that when Biden took office uh, that the attacks against not necessarily Trump, but the attacks against at least his supporters, uh, people associated with Trump, etc., would slow down, that they would have a brief cessation. That has not really happened. The Democrats have been every bit as aggressive in going after, uh, in going after uh, Trump supporters and going after people associated with Trump in any way, shape, or form. These vindictive uh, prosecutions. And I'm just telling you out there, Um, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it as far as all this. I mean, when you talk about people uh, having to deal with these investigations, I mean, if you're somebody like Donald Trump Jr., I mean, thank God he doesn't have to work for his money and he's got plenty of money. But if you're somebody like Donald Trump Jr., he might have to spend two days a week dealing with litigation. Relentlessly, maybe three. A deposition here, a meeting with lawyers there checking up on a motion in another state, hiring new lawyers in that state. This lawyer went on maternity leave, replaced her over there. I mean, it is just, it is an incredible time suck. It is an incredible source of, of annoyance. Uh, for example, just yesterday, just yesterday, I was in Prince George's County Court. This is one of the most crime-ridden counties in the entire country. It's kind of wraps around the District of Columbia in uh, Maryland, all the way up to College Park and then down towards National Harbor and the like. And I was in PG County in the courthouse dealing with a restraining order request that was filed by Jamie Menina. This is uh, Hillary Clinton's former longtime aide. You can Google him. He was a contributor to the Huffington Post. And at the time that we came to know Jamie Menina, or at the time he came to know our decoy at Predator DC posing as an underage teen, by that time he was an FBI special agent, an FBI special agent active duty. And he uh, came to the sting house uh, for an underage scene. He didn't talk to us much. He kind of ran away, as they sometimes do. And a year later or so, or not quite a year later, because this was filmed in the first weekend of November, he filed this restraining order request claiming that we had engaged in physical surveillance of him every day for the last year, which is ridiculous, claiming that we had vandalized his car, that we had electronically harassed him. It's just crazy. And this obviously had had no chance of holding up, but of course we have to sit in court for three hours yesterday waiting our turn to be heard, and the judge got rid of the restraining order. The judge did a fantastic job. It took all of, you know, two minutes once we were called. But it's, it's a, as much about being a nuisance as it's about anything else. You have to understand that about uh, the way that these folks play ball. And there's nothing like it on the right. There's nothing like it on the right. It is just out of control. 
so they write here, uh, a federal grand jury in Washington is examining the formation of and spreading by a super PAC created by Donald J. Trump after his loss in the 2020 election as he was raising millions of dollars by baselessly asserting that the results of the uh, election had been marred by widespread fraud. According to subpoenas issued by the grand jury, the contents of which were described to the New York Times, so they haven't even seen these subpoenas. Can you imagine the New York Times writes a story about subpoenas and they haven't seen them? They've only had the contents des- uh, described to them? And you, do you know what this tells us as, as a news analyst, as somebody who's been personally, I've been the subject of stories like this? The reason why the New York Times hasn't seen the subpoenas, the reason why they have only had their contents described to them is because this came from a leak from within the Justice Department or the FBI. Now, uh, the copies of the subpoenas uh, have stamps on them. So if one were to leak, they have barcodes, okay? They have barcodes stamped into them. If one were to leak, you would know where it came from, assuming that the barcode were there. And they have other little codes and markers and things around them. And so prosecutors know that, so they don't leak the actual copy of the subpoena, because you might even be able to trace it with the barcode down to the individual DOJ employee who leaked it. So instead, they only describe the contents of the New York Times over the phone or what have you. So you, you look here, and that tells you that the Justice Department themselves leaked secret grand jury information. They call that 6E, 6E information, 6 echo information. They themselves leaked it to the New York Times. It says, according to the subpoenas issued by the grand jury, the contents of which were described in the New York Times, that tells you the DOJ leaked it. The Justice Department is interested in the inner workings of Save America PAC, Mr. Trump's main fundraising vehicle after the election. Several similar subpoenas were sent on Wednesday to junior and mid-level aides who worked in the White House and for Mr. Trump's presidential campaign. So you see here, you have a situation in which uh, they sent out subpoenas to junior and mid-level aides. So these are people who worked for the campaign, worked for the White House. They, may, they might have made forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. They have since moved on. They might live in other parts of the country, and now they've got to deal with a subpoena from the Department of Justice. They're going to have to hire a lawyer. The lawyer, just to deal with the subpoena, could charge them, I mean, if they're lucky, ten grand, all the way up to hundred grand, depending on what the scope is of what the DOJ actually wants and what the lawyer is going to have to handle. The new focus on Save America PAC was reported earlier by ABC News. Among the roughly half dozen current and former Trump aides in the White House and in the 2020 presidential campaign who were said to have received subpoenas this week were Bo Harrison, an aide to Mr. Trump in the White House and in his post-presidency, and William S. Russell, who similarly worked in the West Wing and now for Mr. Trump's personal office, according to several people familiar with the events. And you see the other part that happens now. These people then, if they're working in public service, in the case of these White House employees, if they're still working in public service, they have to quit and get a private sector job. If they're working for Trump currently, they can still work for him, but it's going to be a very tenuous thing. They're going to have to communicate with attorneys, CC'd, all of that stuff. You see how this can paralyze an organization. The fact that federal prosecutors are seeking information about Save America PAC is a significant new turn in an already sprawling investigation of the roles that Mr. Trump and some of his allies played in trying to overturn the election, an array of efforts that culminated with the violent mob attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. It's interesting they don't call it an insurrection. They call it a violent mob attack. That's new uh, wording for them. That's quite interesting. And, of course, they don't stop with the aides. 
Uh, they're subpoenaing Trump's attorneys like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, or former attorneys, I guess, in this case. At least one of the subpoenas bore the name of a veteran federal prosecutor in Washington who specializes in fraud cases, suggesting that this avenue of inquiry is devoted primarily to examining the spending and fundraising at Mr. Trump's PAC. Now, this is something where, of course, this investigation has nothing to do with the merits or, you know, doing justice. The Department of Justice at this level in Washington, D.C. is not concerned with justice in any way, shape or form. What this actually has to do with is paralyzing the organization. Although what I will say is I know people like me have been asking questions for a long time about this in the case where you have uh, Trump and you have, uh, you know, him raising money after the election saying that he's going to investigate fraud and the like. I think he raised something like $225 million in the first uh, six months after the election. He does so primarily through, as I see, you know, sort of, sort of spam emails, uh, spam uh, text messages that go out all day long, oftentimes to seniors. You know, you, you've all seen the messages, hey, this is Don Jr. My dad needs your help. Or it says, uh, you're going off the gold member list unless you donate now. Sometimes you click through, it's not even clear what the hell you're donating to unless you click the fine print. Both parties do this. I think that uh, it is something in which it is legal. I think it's been cleared with counsel as far as the actual legal nature of it. I think it would have to be. But it is ethically questionable, of course. And I think that the other question comes down to what exactly has the money been spent on? Was it spent at all to investigate election fraud? And well, I think you might find that it wasn't spent on that. Uh, what is uh, most unfortunate about this is that because Trump has the sort of at least up until now, protection of being the former president and all the political implications that come with that. It's the case that you may see low-level aides for Trump or mid-level aides for Trump charged criminally, whether or not they committed any crimes. Maybe they'll be convicted, maybe they won't. And again, it will have that chilling effect of, do you really want to work for Trump? Because this is what can happen. And will Trump pay for their lawyers? Will he pay their legal fees? Sometimes it seems he does, and sometimes it, he doesn't. There are issues there in terms of conflicts of interest, obviously. Now, generally, you can do whatever you want in terms of paying people's legal fees and the like. Uh, but it, it does complicate matters, obviously. Now, in, in the other main Trump investigation that we have been talking about, you have new leaks coming out from the Washington Post. Uh, Here's a tweet from Margot Cleveland. Uh, she writes, supposedly top secret docs resided unknown in Mar-a-Lago for 18 months and no one is aware of them or what they say. She tags that FBI has them for 18 days and suddenly they and their context are splashed across the front page of WAPO. Is real national security threat in West Palm Beach, Florida or Quantico, Virginia? And uh, she's talking about Quantico, meaning the FBI. I mean, really, it's DCHQ for FBI most of the time. But uh, in fact, they're moving out of that HQ. It's being turned into apartment buildings. It's a brutalist-looking, Soviet-looking building. looks like a KGB headquarters or something. They're moving out of that, uh, moving someplace else. I don't know where as of now. Um, but that's a good, it's a good point. You know, these documents have been in Mar-a-Lago for 18 months. Nobody knows they're there. Nobody knows what they say. They're safe at Mar-a-Lago. They're blocked in a room. Suddenly, the FBI takes them. And now there's all of this question about uh, what's in them. And, you know, the Washington Post reports that the documents included uh, 
a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities and national security information. Again, a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities. Well, could just be those Kim Jong-un letters. I'm sure they discussed what different people's nukes can do. Remember, Trump was talking about our nukes are better than your nukes and they hit faster and harder and all that stuff. They could very well be the damn Kim Jong-un letters based on the vague language that the Washington Post included. In fact, it could be the case that nothing was leaked. And the Washington Post just said, well, what do we know? Uh, Trump took the Kim Jong-un letters with him. Yeah. Um, Well, let's make that sound like it's something special and just describe it vaguely. And that could very well be the case that the Washington Post made a news story where there wasn't one by just repackaging old information. That could very well be the case. But it is certainly the case that you ask yourself, are the documents safer at Mar-a-Lago or are they safer uh, in Washington, D.C. at FBI headquarters or in the National Archives and all of that? I would, I would argue that probably they're a lot safer at Mar-a-Lago. It just seems to me that they'd be much safer there. There's, there's fewer spies roaming around there than there are in Washington, D.C. and in Northern Virginia and uh, the surrounding areas where the documents could be parked. Certainly so, uh, in my view. Now, uh, there's a story out about this uh, CHIPS Plus Act. We covered this uh, act as it was being written and as it was passed on my old program, Man Up with Jacob Wool. Uh, went on for two plus years uh, on that network. It's now here. Uh, but the Biden administration is now to distribute the $50 billion in funding, and they're deciding how. You notice that about this bill is that, yes, Congress appropriates money, but the executive branch still maintains a ton, a ton of discretion as far as how that money's ultimately doled out and to whom. So this is a report out from the... Uh, Daily Caller we're going to talk about here. Uh, But first, let me just remind you that this show is supported by you guys out there. Uh, You can support the show uh, on PayPal, Jacob at Jacob A. Wool. Jacob at, rather, Jacob at JacobWool.org or Real Jacob Wool on Cash App. That's Jacob at JacobWool.org on PayPal or Real Jacob Wool on Cash App. You can support the show. Send in a note along with it. Uh, I do have a number of donation letters that we're going to read on the next episode. Normally, what we'll do is we'll read them each episode uh, you can send a letter along uh, if you have any questions or anything like that. And, you know, I like to get back to the Q&A segments. You can ask questions for the show at jacobwold.org slash contact or just email them jacob at jacobwold.org. Put in the subject line, if you would, or in the first line of the uh, message. Make sure to put question for the show, like in all caps, so that I can find it and sort it out from the other emails. Uh, that's appreciated. So we go to this report here. It says the Commerce, the Commerce Department announced plans to prioritize, quote, underrepresented business owners. Now, this isn't just them announcing it. This was in the language of the bill to some degree, including women and racial minorities when distributing $50 billion in federal funding for the semiconductor industry provided by the recent CHIPS Act. So they want to get this out to women and minorities. Now, we talked about this bill as it was being written, all the ridiculous notions in the bill, like it it promised to bring back the CHIPS manufacturing to the U.S. And the obvious question that I had was, how exactly do you do that? How do you build a chip factory in Ohio? The engineers that can do that sort of thing don't live there. Well, ultimately what the bill ended up saying is that all these companies have to do is have 5% of their total workforce in the U.S. So that could be like, you know, four sales guys in Ohio or four, you know, guys who manage the company's website in Ohio or something like that it in no way is going to bring chip manufacturing to the United States. All of those fabrication plants are in uh, either, you know, uh, Taiwan, who is known for doing the best, China, uh, some in Hong Kong, uh, and there's still a few left in Japan and Korea, still a few left in Japan and Korea, 
There's some cropping up in Vietnam, but for the most part, you're talking about China and their orbit who manufacture all of these chips. The move, which designates underrepresented business owners as those who are racial minorities, women, veterans, or located in rural areas, is part of a broader strategy to leverage collaborations to build out semiconductor ecosystems and create inclusive and broadly shared opportunities for business, according to the Commerce Department strategy for the report. Now, you ask yourself, like, you know, veterans, what does that mean exactly? Why, why are veterans always included in this? Why would veterans... See, on its surface, you'd say, why would veterans be underrepresented? They're like superheroes, aren't they? Yeah, well, a lot of times, certainly so. But the, the, the reality of having a volunteer military force is that, you know, which we've had since the post-Vietnam era, is that a lot of people join the U.S. military who don't have other opportunities going on. And, and more power to them. I mean, it's a great move. They, they move up the socioeconomic ladder. They learn how to say sir and ma'am. They learn how to wake up on time and go to bed on time, if nothing else, if they never do one day of combat service, if they get kicked out after six months. They still learn that. And so the, during peacetime, the military serves as a sort of uh, boost for mostly young men, but also women, to, to move up the socioeconomic ladder. If they live in a place where there's no opportunity, they can walk into a, a recruiting office and they can get the hell out of there. And they can get their college paid for. And that is uh, a big uh, motivator. Now, but the, the, the reality of this, of course, is that many of these people, yes, maybe it's just their environment that doesn't afford them opportunity, but maybe it's also their capabilities, their gifts, their natural gifts, their grades in school, etc., that don't afford them that opportunity. And so as a result of that, yes, you do have uh, veterans as an underrepresented group in this sort of business, because we all think about, you know, the Eric Princes of the world. We think about Navy SEALs. We think about fighter pilots. Okay. But that's not most of the U.S. military. That is the, 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 the peak elite echelons where those people, whatever the skill set, they're the best of the best at what they do. We think about the guys jumping out and somehow parachuting into a stadium. That is the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of um, it is the, uh, what is the term for this? It's the aspirational image that is, that is proponed by the U S military as a recruiting tool and as a, as a psychological tool to keep the, the, the U S on board with, with the military. And, it, and it's powerful. That's what Americans naturally think of, but that's not most of the military. That is, a, like I said, a very small group. And so they end up being an underrepresented group, whether it's their fault, whether it's the you know, that they gave up their 20s and they never got the head start and it's tough to catch up afterwards. Whatever the case might be, there's a lot of reasons. So that's why they get included. I, I always wondered about that. And they said, or located in rural areas. Yeah, I mean, again, how do you build a chip factory in the middle of nowhere when you don't have the engineers there? You just don't have the people. You have to move them in. Well, then where the hell do they live? There's no houses for them to live in. Do they want to move in there? Probably not. They tend to be more kind of urban and suburban type people. So it's tough. It's very tough, but, but they say that with $50 billion, they're going to remedy this. And it actually is more like $350 billion if you add up the whole uh, bill. This is just the section that was cut out for the underrepresented groups. Again, that was done by law. The Daily Mail does not point that out. They just pretend as though, or the, not the Daily Mail, the Daily Caller here, because it's a Republican publication, their bias is to blame Biden. And, and the reality of this is that 
This bill was supported by Republicans. It was passed by Republicans uh, with their support, and uh, it included this in the language of the bill. It's not merely the Commerce Department deciding it on their own. Now, they ha they're happy to take credit for it because they are uh, leftists now in there uh, under Biden, but uh, it wasn't just their doing. Establishing a resilient domestic supply is critical to both the military and economic goals of the U.S., particularly by uh, freeing the U.S. from reliance on increasingly hostile China, according to the Commerce Department. That's all true, but I don't see how this is going to do it. Uh, this bill is not going to change the overall production of chips. Uh, the legislation authorizes investments to expand the geographic and institutional diversity of research institutions and the students and researchers they serve, according to new initiatives to support historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and other minority-serving institutions and other academic institutions providing opportunities to the historically underserved students and communities, primarily through the National Science Foundation, according to the White House fact sheet. My God, could they have said historically underserved any more than this? And, you know, it's funny they talk about underserved. That is always an interesting term to me. Underserved. Like, I live in a, I live in what you would call a white suburb. Um, it's like 90 plus percent white or something. I live in a white suburb. And uh, what if I just wanted to go to the doctor for free? Do you know, where would I go within my community to just, if I just wanted to, you know, go to the doctor and, and not pay it for it, just, you know, go for free. Do you know where I would go? There's nowhere to go. Uh, what if I wanted to um, go pick up some food for free? There's probably a church I could find nearby. It's a reality of it because they're very charitable in these kind of communities. But what if I wanted to um, go to a university that would let me in because of the color of my skin that gets billions of dollars in federal funding every year to do that, to let me in because of the color of my skin? Where would I go in this neighborhood? You see, it seems like, in fact, these other communities are, in fact, very well served. They are served a hell of a lot, and maybe that's part of the problem. Calling them underserved is, is a real twist of terms. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Calling them underperforming, now, now that would be a more realistic term. That would be a term which is closer to reality, an underperforming community. Now, you can talk about why they're underperforming. That's a different show. That's its own show. My God, that's 10 shows, 10 episodes. But to call them underserved, it's like, 50 billion here, 10 billion there, 100 billion here, free health clinic here, historically black college and university there. And then you say, they're underserved. And then they say, well, they're historically underserved. Okay, as of when exactly? Because as far as anyone can remember, it's like nothing but uh, institutionally racist government programs to serve them based on demographic factors that they can't control. You know, so it is it is really something to uh, to see. I mean, they, they, they call it that. But, you know, they say it so many times. The funny thing is, if you try to sell it too hard, it comes off as ingenuous. And so and so the fact that they come out and they call it historically underserved like five times in the same sentence tells you that maybe they think it's not historically underserved. It's like it's a new car. It's new. It's perfectly new. It's brand new. If you said that five times in one sentence, you'd say, is this car maybe used or something? Did they roll back the odometer? You know, they sell it too hard. Now, it says companies will also need to demonstrate 
the spillover benefits they would provide to their communities, such as housing, environmental, training programs, and partnerships with other organizations and states to build regional ecosystems, according to the Commerce Department. So companies will need to demonstrate the spillover benefits, spillover. When I think of spillover, I think of like a vat of toxins spilling over the top, boiling over. I, I think of, you know, horse maneuvers, manure spilling over into a river, or I think of, uh, you know, somebody's big fat belly spilling over the bridge of their pants, you know, things like this. It's, uh, I don't know why they say they use that term spillover benefits they would provide to their community, such as housing, environmental training, environmental, like they, they just use the word environmental on its own. Remember, um, last week or, or last episode, we talked about Podesta. They said, work on climate or climate work. He has a long history on climate work. Now they just say environmental. You have to do, and they, they're like, what do you want us to do? Environmental. What the hell does that mean? Well, we all know what it means. I mean, what it means, it's, it's a colloquialism that describes doing foolish things like building big solar panels for no reason, even though they can't provide the power or, or doing foolish things like putting up a giant windmill that makes annoying noises and kills all the birds. And that's what it means. But they have to cloak it behind the colloquial term, behind the euphemism, because it is so obviously foolish on, on its face. <clears throat> you, you just read these Commerce Department statements, and, and you know that it, they're being written by a, a, somebody probably my age or younger, 24, I'm 24, or younger, uh, who is just a rabid leftist and, and a social justice warrior, just by the way they sound. Uh, proposals would acquire—proposals to acquire funding must also support, quote, workforce training programs that train workers for jobs that are either unionized or offer wages higher than the local prevailing wage in order to be prioritized. Okay, so th so here's what the company has to do. They have to build a chip factory in the middle of nowhere. They have to build the housing. They have to put up stupid solar panels and stuff. Uh, they also need regional ecosystems, whatever that means. Um, and not only that, but they need to train the locals to, to build the chips as opposed to bringing in people who already know how to build them. And uh, they either be, need to be unionized, and I don't know what the chip workers union is. I don't think there ever has been a chip workers union. Uh, or pay a higher wage, pay, pay a wage higher than the local prevailing wage, which of course is going to suck people out of wherever they're working in, in the local economy. My God, I mean, this stuff, it's all, it's all so touchy-feely. And you see, that's the problem. The, the leftist way of thinking is, how does it feel? Does it feel warm and fuzzy? Then it's good policy. It doesn't matter what it actually does. It, it's like when Obama proposed that what you really need to defeat ISIS is not carpet bombing, but what you, what you really need are job programs. Do you remember that back in 2013? Do you remember that Obama would drop leaflets on the ISIS oil convoys in 2013, 2014? He dropped down leaflets first that said, get out of your truck before we blow it up. It's like, you, you morons. They want to blow up in the truck and go see their 72 virgins. My God. And he, he proposed that what you needed to defeat ISIS were job programs. It's like, how great would it be if all you needed to do uh, to make somebody not clack off a bomb vest is uh, teach them how to weld or uh, you know, turn them into a uh, landscaper? 
it, it feels like it would be so uh, uh, wonderful, so positive. It, it feels almost as though it could just make lilies sprout up in the middle of the Sahara. But of course, it's nonsense. It doesn't work that way. It's not based in reality. And But that's the, that's the central core of what's wrong with most all of the left-wing policies. Commerce Department believes that incentives and programs of this nature are key to secure talent in the semiconductor industry. Okay, so they, they talk about this. This is, of course, in this Daily Caller report. For those of you listening, maybe skipping around in the episode, this Daily Caller report entitled Biden Administration to Distribute 50 Billion Chips Fund Based on Race and Gender. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, the problem of talent in the chips industry is a big one. I think the last count, China graduates six electrical engineers for every college graduate period that the U.S. graduates. Six for every one. So for every single college graduate with any kind of degree in the U.S., China graduates six electrical engineers as of the last time I checked. India is a similar number. Even Russia is higher than the U.S. So you're not going to sprout up this talent out of nowhere. I mean, there are, my God, I couldn't engineer a chip. I consider myself quite capable at many things, but I am not a a chip architecture engineer. I couldn't even put the thing together. I mean, a lot of this is automated. It's not done by people soldering things anymore, of course, but I'm not somebody, I hate soldering. I mean, I, I can I, I don't even like to put connectors onto uh, coaxial cable. I don't even like to put on the the N-type or, or PL259 connectors for the radio stuff. I don't even like to do that. And you're telling me you're going to take people uh, in the middle of uh, Burlington, Vermont, or in the middle of uh, Dubuque, Iowa, or in the middle of uh, Fargo, and you're going to uh, turn them into chip engineers? To hell with the fact that they couldn't tell you Ohm's law. To hell with the fact they can't tell you, uh, you know, the difference between impedance, resistance, and reactance. No, you're just going to teach them. It's it's simple, right? It's like being a cashier. No, it's not. I mean, chip engineers are some of the smartest people in the world, in a very particular way, too. And of course, uh, the East Asian, the Oriental mind, is something that does very well at that kind of work. I mean, when you look at the the highest IQs in the world, you have Ashkenazi Jews and East Asians right up there for the highest. But what you notice is when you look deeper, the scores for Ashkenazi Jews, like myself, they tend to be more weighted towards oral acuity, written acuity words. That's why you see more Jewish lawyers, things like that. And when you look at East Asians, it tends to be more biased towards spatial reasoning, numbers, and the like. Uh, The stereotypes kind of end up being true there. And so you see more Asian uh, engineers. Again, these are just averages. They don't speak to individuals. They're just averages, but that's what you find. Uh, the, the Commerce Department, we're going to wrap up this story quickly here. The Commerce Department also noted that uh, guardrails were in place to maximize public benefits, forbidding the use of the funds for stock buybacks and other shareholder events. Those who wish to receive federal funding were required to show evidence of significant investments in workforces and communities, including programs to expand opportunity for economically disadvantaged individuals. Well, hopefully they can do that. Again, it's like if this bill works out, I, I'm not cheerleading against it. All these goals you would, would, would be considered admirable. You'd wonder about the fairness of the bills, the fact that you know they're 
bringing people in based on the color of their skin and their gender and all of that. But if it worked, would it be a bad thing? Would this hurt the country? No. The reality is it's not designed to work. It isn't designed to work. What will happen is that the major chip makers will be the vast majority of recipients of this money. The Intels, the AMDs, they will be the major recipients of this. Even Apple will probably take from the pie. They will do little feel-good things here and there. They'll donate to nonprofits to, to write down that and check that box. And then they'll use the money for whatever the hell they want to use it for. And they'll hire lobbyists like me to make sure it gets done. You see, that, that's a lot of the business we do as lobbyists, is that uh, you think about, you know, what does a lobbyist do? Well, a lot of what you do, for example, is you have a company, and for us, it wouldn't be Intel, be more middle market companies, but you have a company who wants federal funding. Let's say they've completed in-house with their lawyers, or maybe they haven't, say a grant proposal for something like this, but then they need some political muscle to get it across the finish line. And so what we'll do is we'll go in and lobby members of Congress who are on the key committees relating to a project like this, like the House Energy and Commerce Committee, we'll lobby those members or subcontract somebody who can uh, to basically have them send a letter, make a phone call, and, and have the grant money pushed uh, in the direction of that particular proposal. So that's how that will work on the lobbying side. I mean, I, I look forward to uh, uh, making money with it. It's going to be great for uh, lobbyists. It says approximately $28 billion in funding was allocated for development of cutting-edge chips with national security implications, $10 billion to expand production of more typical chips, while $11 billion was allocated to research and developmental, the Commerce Department said. So some of this is going to be eaten up by DOD, of course. They're going to get their pound of flesh here. I uh, want to go to uh, this very interesting thread uh, by Glenn Greenwald out on uh, Twitter here. Let's see if we can uh, get over to uh, this thread here. Uh, let's see here. Glenn Greenwald. Uh, let's go here to this. Okay, this is a thread here from uh, from Glenn Greenwald, and uh, we're going to go through it here and uh, talk a little bit about this uh, concept, this, this realization. It's been a realization that I've had um, for, for quite a long time about the way that censorship really works. Uh, but I want to uh, discuss it here with you. So we're going to get into this all here. Um, this is from Glenn Greenwald here. Uh, he writes in the first tweet, for those of you listening, I I'm going to read it out for you. The regime of censorship being imposed on the internet by a consortium of DC Dems, billionaire funded, quote, disinformation experts, the U.S. security state and liberal employees of media corporations is dangerously intensifying in ways I believe are not adequately understood. That's from Glenn Greenwald here. Okay, that's the first tweet. Now, he's going to get into this a little bit. Again, this is something that if you're somebody like me who has been censored all over the internet, banned from Instagram, banned from Facebook, banned from Twitter, banned from LinkedIn, uh, banned from Uber, banned from Tinder. I don't need Tinder. I'm happily in a long-term relationship. Don't need any of that stuff. But just banned, you know, across the board. Uh, it, it's something that, that I have sought to understand. And it's been easier for me to understand because I've been on the receiving end. I've watched how the pieces fit together. But Glenn Greenwald puts it uh, for the average person quite, quite well here. He says, a series of crises have been cynically and aggressively exploited to inexorably restrict the range of permitted views and expand pretexts for online silencing and deplatforming. Trump's election, Russiagate, uh, January 6th, COVID, the war in Ukraine, all fostered new methods of repression. 
So they say, oh, you know, we, we have to stop COVID disinformation. It's going to kill people. We need this new method of censorship. We need this new list. We need this new uh, automated censorship uh, tool. I mean, it, it all fits together. Uh, Trump's election, they said, we have to ban the Russian bots. January 6th, they said, we're going to have violence. We have to ban Trump himself. The war in Ukraine, again, back to the Russia fear. So he talks about this here. Uh, he, he goes on, he says, uh, during the failed attempt in January to force Spotify to remove Joe Rogan, the, mo- the country's most influential, uh, rather most popular podcaster, remember that? I wrote that the current regime of Western liberals in politics and media is censorship, their prime weapon of activism. That's true. Well, he did write that on uh, Substack here. Now, he continues, but that Rogan failure only strengthened their repressive campaigns. Dems routinely abuse their majoritarian power in D.C. to explicitly coerce big tech, silencing their opponents and dissent. This is government censorship disguised, disguised as corporate autonomy. So they say, oh, it's a private company. Private companies can do whatever they want. You know, that's not censorship. The government censoring is censorship. Well, yeah, now it turns out that throughout 2021 and even when Trump was in office, the NIH on their own, we're going out there. We're, we're, had a direct link uh, to Twitter where they didn't even have to make a phone call. They had a, a, an instant chat room basic system where they could just put into the Slack chat room. They use Slack in the case of NIH. And they could say, ban this account. Boom, it was banned. And they had dozens of people on this. I remember you know, Jack Berkman, uh, my business partner, had remained on uh, Twitter a little bit longer than I had. I was banned in February of uh, 2019, February 26, 19. He remained until oh, February or March of uh, 2020. He was banned because he said, everyone look out. They're going to push this pandemic and there will be shortages of certain foods in the grocery store. Prepare. He said that they banned him. They said he's trying to fear monger. That's COVID misinformation. Of course, it's exactly what happened. And he cited Kelly and Conway as his source on that, who was still working in the White House. But he was banned for it anyway. Just like many people have been banned for saying things that are perfectly true online. But it's happened constantly over and over again at the request of government. Now, he talks here about the, the ecosystem of these billionaire funded uh, uh, disinformation experts. People aren't disinformation experts. He says here, there's now an entire new industry aligned with Dems to pressure big tech to censor. These think tanks and self-proclaimed disinformation experts funded by Omid Yar, who is one of the co-founders of uh, eBay, left-wing billionaire, Soros, and the U.S. and U.K. security state. So they actually get direct funding from FBI, direct funding from uh, DIA, from CIA, uh, from DOD in many cases in the form of grants and in the form of secret funding even. Uh, they use benign-sounding names to glorify ideological censorship as neutral expertise. And he shows here like Jared Holt, for example, who is now uh, no longer at Right Wing Watch, which was his site where he would just routinely uh, attempt to uh, basically deface the reputations of people like me, of, of people like Donald Trump, etc., uh, now he now work, he now works at the Atlantic Council, one of these billionaire-funded think tanks that also gets money from the U.S. government, and they describe him as working in the digital forensic lab as a disinformation expert. Uh, you have the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and it says the Kremlinists of Twitter, and it says you need to ban all of these people. They're working; they might be working for the Kremlin. The Aspen Institute, Commission on Information Disorder. So you have these very clinical-sounding names out there, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, 
Yeah, they'll say that you're working for organized crime if they don't like what you're posting. So it goes on and on. By the way, these groups have no problem uh, with rampant uh, child pornography on the internet. They have no problem with rampant uh, child exploitation online. They aren't interested in backing something like Predator DC to expose internet predators. No. In fact, many of these people are sexual deviants themselves who work for these operations. And we've seen it over and over again. They walk into our sting house and they work for think tanks like these. Happens constantly. He says, the worst, most vile arm of this regime uh, are the censorship-mad liberal employees of big tech corporations. Yeah, these people are really vile and sick. Uh, people like Ben Collins at CNN or at uh, MSNBC, at NBC, I guess. Uh, they call him a journalist and a tech reporter. Brandy's a drony. I've, I've, I've dealt with these people. Um, you know, people like Taylor Lorenz. Uh, Democrat groups like Media Matters for America, which has been around a long time, Mike Isaac at the New York Times. These people, uh, they basically, their role is to pose as journalists. So you have, you have basically uh, circular reporting that takes place. You have the tech companies, which obviously are left-wing. You have now these uh, generic-sounding think tanks, which are cited by sources as fake, by the fake news journalists, and they're backed by government, get government money, and they cite government officials themselves as being sources in their think tank reports. So it all feeds into itself. It's a, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating sort of machine. The cogs fit together, fueled by billions of dollars from left-wing billionaires, often foreigners, uh, who aim to influence our elections by doing things like banning us. In fact, I was just on a left-wing podcast yesterday to promote this show. It should be coming out soon. It's called the Yeah, But Still podcast, and they're behind a paywall and stuff, so uh, who knows when it'll come out. They can take a while. They're, they're liberals, but they're uh, at least tolerable. You know, they, 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 they have a conversation. They're not interested in just arguing with me about uh, idiotic things the whole time. And they were saying, dude, you are absolutely censored and shadow banned. I said, yeah. They said, no, no, you don't understand. You're so shadow banned, Jacob, that uh, you know, we're left-wingers, you know, we, we don't get censored. I'm like, uh-huh. I said, but, but when we tried to post um, a screenshot to your episode, it either deleted it on Instagram, uh, deleted the story, gave us warnings, um, or when it did let us post it, it got like four likes when all of our other posts get 1,600 to 1,800. I said, mm-hmm. They said, so it's crazy, dude. You're, you're like shadow banned. And this was like uh, a, 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 a total revelation to them that, that it's not just uh, made-up nonsense that it's actually true, that there's really left-wing censorship. And said, yeah, then we got written up in this report, and we got, we got hurt by this, uh, th they put out this report on us from this think tank. I said, uh-huh, yeah, that's how it works. So it was amazing to see these left-wingers who are generally above being censored come out and say, dude, you won't believe this, but there's such a thing as censorship. It's like, yeah, I've been saying that for years. I'm one of the most censored people on earth, along with Laura Loomer and and, and Roger Stone, and now Trump, and, 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 and many others. Alex Jones, of course. He continues here, he says, it is astonishing to watch Dems and their allies in media corporations uh, posture as opponents of fascism, while their main goal is to unite state and corporate power, to censor their critics, and degrade the internet into an increasingly repressive weapon of information control. That's right. And you go here to... Uh, 
you go here to a clip from Ed Markey, which he has in the thread. I'm going to play it for you here, uh, Senator Ed Markey. And you see that even uh, congressmen and senators are in on this scheme on the left. And Republicans don't defend us because they get money from Google, too. People like, uh, oh, I think, uh, geez, just about every Republican senator takes money from big tech in one form or other. So they're not there to defend you. Uh, we go here to this clip from Ed Markey, again, U.S. Senator out of Massachusetts. Listen to what he has to say about this. Problem. The issue is not that the companies before us today are taking too many posts down. The issue is that they're leaving too many dangerous posts up. So that's Ed Markey there, and, and he says there needs to be more censorship. They need to take more posts down. My office needs to have an inside link to Facebook to crush dissent. Now, you know, the, the solutions to this are, are tough. It's like, what do you do? Do you just start your own platform? Well, look what happened with uh, Parler with that. I mean, th they were literally had, had the machine out pulled from under them by Amazon, because they entrusted Amazon AWS to be their back end, which is, of course, a cloud server system, to be their servers, to be their hosting. They had WordPress involvement. It was always a really poorly designed app where it was basically a, they took a, a WordPress comment section extension and they built on it and it was, it just didn't work real well ever. But they were pulled right off of AWS. Even if you did have the app, you couldn't use it. Or, or how about even Truth Social? It's available on the iPhone for now. Um, but how long till their so servers are pulled? I think they've now uh, migrated onto Amazon AWS because they can't expand quickly enough with their own servers or find a provider who's reliable enough who's not going to censor them. Uh, they're banned from the Google Play Store. This podcast, it, you know, for now we're streaming on YouTube, but we don't know how long we're going to be allowed on YouTube. You just never know uh, with content like this. Now, it is a podcasting 2.0 podcast, so... Uh, that means it is going to be almost impossible to censor. You will always be able to find it somewhere. You know, Spotify could censor it. Google Podcasts could censor it. But you will always be able to find it somewhere through a podcasting 2.0 uh, app. And, and really, the, the, the war on censorship, and it is a worthy and important war, comes down to doing things like uh, having systems along the lines of podcasting 2.0, which are uh, essentially uh, decentralized which don't have central control, which aren't reliant on big tech platforms for their back ends or for their front ends or for anything. So that becomes very important. It is something in which what we have to get back to on the right is a system that more resembles the internet of the 1990s or the real early 2000s. What has happened is that when you ask uh, a young person, uh, uh, like a, a teenager, if you were to ask, like my teenage sister, you were to ask her, uh, you know, what is the internet? They, they might say, well, it's Facebook, it's uh, Twitter, it's, uh, you know, it's Wikipedia. They, they think of the whole internet as being these centralized platforms because they grew up in the era of apps. It went from, you know, what kind of smartphone, how's the browser going to be so that you can get to websites to apps. We live in the app world. So it got centralized down to these different tiles, the different apps, and the browser was sort of an afterthought. Well, in all of that now is the world we live in, in which the internet and, and the attention economy, and that's a buzzword, I hate to use buzzwords, but the, the attention of the world really is centralized around these platforms. And you have to go away from them. And I've seen it. I, I mean, I would tell people on Instagram, I, I had 150,000 followers there, I'd say, 
you know, look, follow me on Telegram. It is uh, critical that you follow me there. I could be censored here any day. And I wasn't even tweeting, tweeting or, or rather posting uh, political content on Instagram. But I just knew they pull your card one day, you're out. Happened to Andrew Tate just recently. And so I'm telling you now, go follow me on Rumble. I'm telling you now, if you follow on YouTube, go follow on a podcasting 2.0 app like Pocket Casts or whichever podcast app you like, preferably not a Google or Apple podcasting app because they censor people. Go do that. Uh, because what, what I saw is that very few people made the migration over to these uh, less censorship-prone systems. And uh, it, is, it is a tough thing when that happens, so it's, it's critical. Now, I, I go here uh, in the live chat. You guys can post uh, questions here in the live chat if you're happening to, to watch live. You may be listening later, of course. Uh, somebody says here, finally made it live. This is my favorite show on censored.tv besides get off my lawn. Well, thank you. That's Gavin's show over there. Um, and, uh, he says here, um, I thought that most chips came out of Taiwan. Yeah. Most chips come out of Taiwan. That's right. Um, Jacob, what do you think of, depending on what kind of chips you're talking about again, you know, we think of chips as being the chips in your PC or the chips in your video game system, lots of different sorts of chips. Jacob, what do you think of zoomer and millennial males choosing to play, as female characters in video games. Watch any streamer on Twitch or YouTube and all these guys play as a female character. I don't know, maybe it's just that they want some female company because it's a very male-centric role and even if the only female company is their own female character, maybe they see it as that way. Uh, you know, it says, yeah, they leave Antifa posts up. Of course they do. I mean, you can, the, the things that the left says on Twitter, I mean, it's just out of control and on all of these apps. Jacob, you are, uh, you ever think about doing live on Getter? I have your show up there now. I hope you don't mind. Uh, no, uh, please uh, post everywhere. Post the show everywhere. Uh, post the links everywhere. Uh, you're welcome to, to rebroadcast this. Uh, you're very welcome to do that. You can absolutely do that. Of course, today I'm, I'm exclusively streaming on uh, YouTube, but I'm, I'm looking at ways to simul stream across YouTube, uh, Telegram, and many other places. Uh, at the same time, I think now uh, Rumble has a, 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 a streaming feature, so we're going to be doing that. Of course, show again, I'll, I'll say supported by you, Cash App, Real Jacob Bull, uh, PayPal, Jacob at Jacobbull.org. We'll have other methods coming. Of course, there's super chats here also on YouTube. Um, I, I don't like to put money into YouTube because, of course, they could shut me down anytime and just steal the money, and they've done things like that to people before. It says, yeah, if you stream political stuff here on YouTube, the clock is ticking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what uh, somebody says here in the chat. Email questions as well, along with your donations. You can do that, uh, jacobwold.org slash contact or jacob at jacobwold.org. Uh, just looking here if there's any final questions before we wrap up the show. It says, we in red states, we must also appoint activist AGs to engage in lawfare against their politicians. Some already are. Yeah, Republican AGs have been good at suing uh, Facebook now, finally, on certain items that violate their own state laws. They've been good about uh, the abortion issue. Uh, suing on that. They've done good work. Uh, but uh, yeah, we need that times 10, of course. We really do. We need we need our own AGs. And, and hopefully what we can have in this country is a world in which we reach a detente. But, but the only way to that with the left is through stepping up our capabilities, is through stepping up our own uh, activities on the right, Republican AGs doing what the left does, because you're not going to achieve peace through weakness. We aren't going to achieve peace with the left uh, in any way, shape, or form by recoiling, by hiding. That only emboldens them. 
So hopefully Republican AG step it up. You're absolutely right. Uh, but uh, we're going to wrap up here, guys. Thanks so much for watching uh, live here, The Jacob Bull Show, Episode 3. Make sure to subscribe. Uh, hit the bell on YouTube. Remember to subscribe on podcast apps, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a five-star review and help us move up the rankings. Thanks so much for watching this episode of The Jacob Wolf Show. Again, we stream every Monday and Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's when the shows come out. Uh, never miss an episode in the last two and a half years doing my other show. Uh, don't plan to miss any on this show either. So I'll see you again uh, here. It'll be uh, Monday for episode four. I'm sure there'll be a lot of news to discuss. Thanks for so much for uh, joining me on this episode. It's been wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see the support, to have you. Thanks for uh, stepping up and supporting me. Uh, it's not easy to go out on your own and leave a network, but it's, I've been really uh, humbled and, and grateful to, for the support here. Uh, thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you next time on The Jacob Wolf Show.